0: The Criminal Record Office in 1959 was a mixture of good and bad. The good was very good, the bad was atrocious. The good consisted of the fact that the criminal records of convicted prisoners went back to antiquity. The system, too, was orderly, starting in 1959 with, for example, 000159 and finishing with 999,999,59. The allocated number, of course, Remained with the subject until some time after his slasher death. In addition, because the record consisted of an actual file folder full of documents, the record could contain numerous pieces of helpful information. Information that was invaluable to officers trying to track down a suspect. This information was added to by every CID officer who came into contact with the subject over the years. These additions might be in the form of a comprehensive report, or just a brief note on a piece of paper. The CRO file would include a full description, including distinctive marks etc., full details of all court appearances, charges, results and co-accused, methods used to commit crime, addresses of the subject and his relatives, cigarette smoked, favorite pubs, hobbies, football team supported, friends, acquaintances and girlfriends, and their addresses. Nobody could say that the CRO wasn't retaining abundant pertinent information respecting criminals. In this, it was truly superb. The bad was that these records were, perforce, kept in thousands of tin boxes. These files had to be physically searched for and obtained by an officer from the bowels of the old New Scotland Yard, on the embankment. The nominal index, an index only, wherein every single criminal since time began was recorded, was adjacent to the antiquated and utterly chaotic telephone switchboard. Because of the system at the time, no priority could be assigned a caller. A light flashed and a phone was answered. But it might be a person who had just telephoned or a person who had been waiting for, literally, 20 minutes. If the caller wished to know whether a person actually had a criminal record, the barest details would enable a search to be made in the nominal index. This took no more than a minute. Assuming the person was known, his CRO number could then be quoted. Then, however, things went awry. If any details from the file were required, the officer who had answered the phone would have to travel to the basement, from the fifth floor of the building, and physically search in the catacombs for the actual file amongst millions. Certainly, there was a straightforward system for filing the tin boxes inside which the actual cardboard files were kept tightly wedged, but it was a time-consuming business. Wanted index dash indicating all persons wanted on warrants, property index wherein records of marked and identifiable stolen property was retained, and similar specialist indices were kept on stiff cards in banks of drawers. These, too, had to be searched manually. People wouldn't believe how antiquated the system was. In addition there was a shortage of manpower. The only records that were reasonably organized, and then, not perfectly, were fingerprints. These were maintained and controlled by a special department, C.7, upstairs on the top floor. Maybe, for the times, it wasn't too bad. That doesn't excuse the fact that, although everyone knew of ways to improve the system, it took many years to become reasonably efficient. The actual records were all there. Obtaining them was the problem. I worked at CRO for about 8 months, before being released, time off, for good behavior maybe. The frustrations were great and, often, it was so embarrassing to have to try to explain the reason for poor service to a man from a county force who had never seen the place, unlike many med officers. The med officers could appreciate the problem, which didn't stop them complaining, of course. Our provincial colleagues must have become demented with frustration and annoyance. On a lighter note, Prince Philip was scheduled to visit the yard one day in 1960. The route was decided upon and that route, only, painted? I could have told them, the error of their ways. On the appointed day, H.R.H. arrived with a small entourage. The walkabout was going well. A spanking clean and polished toilet was reached. Polite inquiries were made, but H.R.H., being a younger man at the time, stated that he could hold it in. The tour proceeded. A short while later, as the group were getting off a lift, the planned route was politely pointed out. HRH strode off in the opposite direction, ostensibly to find a toilet. He found one, in the state the vast majority of them were found, pretty depressing. Consternation reigned among the police bigwigs. Upon rejoining the group, HRH passed a succinct comment about the rest of the building not being up to the standard of the tour route. Really, they should have known better than to try to fool a former naval ship's captain. The only good thing about the work in CRO was that the working hours, for the majority of the staff, were mainly Monday to Friday and during the daytime. The CRO, of course, was a 24-hour, 7-day week operation. The hours allowed us to have a cricket team which played on the weekends against many teams in the area, but not very well. My posting out of CRO, when it came, was another complete surprise. I was posted to C.8, the famous flying squad. In 1960 the Flying Squad comprised eight, eight eight-man teams of men. These teams consisted of a detective inspector, up to four detective sergeants and the remainder detective constables. Each team had the use of, at least, three powerful and nondescript cars, rovers, Jaguars, Vauxhall Crestas, for example, and three experienced first-class drivers. Extra vehicles and drivers could be acquired and specialist vehicles like taxis, vans and trucks were readily obtainable also available were special observation vans. These vans were designed to appear innocuous, but to provide excellent concealed viewing and photographic capability. Instead of being confined by jurisdictional boundaries, the Sweeney, Todd, squad, rhyming slang, were basically unfettered. The whole of the metropolitan police area, and much of the home counties, was within the everyday scope of the squad. The primary role of the flying squad was to infiltrate the world of the criminals bent on large-scale, widespread or violent crime robberies shopbreaking office breaking or store breaking involving explosives theft of lorry loads of valuable merchandise crime involving guns or weapons were among the most common crimes the squad concentrated on each team was independent and relied mostly on informants the team members had cultivated over the years for this reason most of the 8 squads operated mainly on the manners subdivisions on which the members of the team had previously served consequently Much of the work done by the squad I was attached to was mainly in the west of London. All detectives had a network of informants, and knowing what was going down, and when it was going down, was critically important. We were fortunate in having a man whose physical attributes allowed him, very easily, to infiltrate the known haunts of many professional criminals. His demeanor and expert knowledge enabled him to also infiltrate their small groups, often mistakenly called gangs. Most criminals were independent, only joining up with others when a certain job was contemplated. A couple of men might occasionally stay together, but gangs, as generally thought of, were very few. This member of our squad managed, on more than one occasion, to get himself hired, sometimes as a driver, in cases of lorry hijacking. We were, as a result, waiting in ambush when the lorry arrived at the offloading, or garaging point. It was usually only at these places that the whole group would turn up together. At that time, violence was seldom used in these cases. Usually the lorry would be taken while the real driver was eating or sleeping. Sometimes, regrettably, the real driver was involved in the crime, it was my job, very often, to chase our man. In this way it didn't look odd, later at the local Nick, police station, if I hadn't caught him because, from a glance, it could be seen I was not built for speed. The wide variety of goods, stolen as a result of lorries being stolen, was staggering. We had loads of razor blades and razors, tin fruit, tin meats, tobacco and cigarettes, chocolate bars, wines and spirits, groceries, clothing and even shoes. There is, of course, a market for everything, if only it can be found. It is for this reason that receiving stolen property is classified as a more serious offense than actually stealing it. A particularly satisfying case involved a brutal robbery at the Lots Road Power Station in Chelsea. The robbery occurred one morning in 1961. Information was already to hand about such an occurrence, but details were unknown. Acting upon this information, warrants were obtained and that very evening numerous addresses were searched. Detective Sergeant Byers, a highly competent officer, led these searches and money was found at many of the addresses. Some of the individual notes had numbers which tallied with the numbers known to be included in the bundles supplied by the bank. A highly successful court case followed. A commissioner's commendation was earned by debt. Sergeant Byers and his squad for the detection and conviction of this team of villains. In the case of one of the suspects, we found the money and had to wait for the owner to come back home. The suspense was great, not only for the officers, but for the culprit's parents who were detained in the house. We couldn't risk the chance, of course, that they would alert their son of our presence. At about 0130 hours, the man walked indoors and surrendered peacefully. It is a strange feeling to be searching through another person's wardrobe, and open a hold-all to discover a very large cache of money. Another robbery, This time at the British Overseas Airways Corporation Administration building in Heathrow. Working only on information received, we soon believed we knew who was responsible. A large sum of money was recovered, which, unfortunately, couldn't be positively identified by either the bank or the airline. However, purely on circumstantial evidence, the team stood trial at the Central Criminal Court, Old Bailey. One by one, most of the team members were acquitted, some even going to a retrial, due to the jury being unable to agree. Finally, the last one was acquitted. Shortly afterwards, a group of us were in the Magpie and Stump, the local pub, when the acquitted man walked in and joined his friends. We all met up over drinks and a friendly, but uninformative conversation ensued. It should be mentioned that many old-time villains, together with old-time policemen, never held grudges or, indeed, any real hostility towards each other. Each knew that the other was only doing their job. Each side being bent on their own employment. Ours, of many working days, were spent by policemen talking to known criminals. They would discuss everything under the sun, except what crimes were being hatched by them. Crimes being considered, or committed, by other groups were a different matter very often. Favors were repaid by favors and much of the excellent information came from the lips of people who were, themselves, top-drawer criminals. Drinks would be exchanged and a friendly rivalry existed in many cases. It wasn't long before violent people, like the Cray twins from South London, became numerous and, In the main, the old time relationship became much rarer. Policemen, as a whole, do not forgive, or countenance, violent crime or violent criminals. Skill, craft, adroitness, dexterity, agility, plausibility, and even cunning could all be appreciated and admired by policemen, but not violence. However, back to the magpie and stump. As the last acquitted villain was leaving, I asked, jocularly, what was going to happen to the money that had been stolen. He paused on the threshold of the pub. Then he turned and, with a twinkle in his eye, said you'll find out. This man and his group of friends later carried out the Great Train robbery. The money which financed the operation was, in the main, the money stolen from BOAC we certainly did find out. Incidentally, we learned, during the BOAC robbery case, that jury members were being approached by friends of the accused. As a result of this, evidence was obtained sufficient to satisfy the Attorney General. Steps to allow a majority verdict were instituted and, eventually, the unanimous requirement for juries, abolished. Although there are those who disagree with the principle of majority verdicts, the fact remains that criminals, with vast sums of money to spend, frequently possess more than is sufficient to satisfy the wants of many ordinary folk. Greed, by any name, will usually overcome scruples, especially in matters so anonymous and distant as a court case involving strangers. Other countries should remove their heads from the sand and face the undoubted truth. Juries are being tampered with, wholesale, by criminals with huge sums of illegal money. Who can seriously doubt this? Another satisfying case was the arrest and conviction of a team of baggage handlers operating out of Heathrow Airport. The M.O., modus operandi, was always the same. Outgoing flights only were attacked. While the luggage was being loaded into the aircraft's hold, one or two men, with the full connivance of the others, would conceal themselves in the hold and pillage the luggage and freight during the loading procedure. Stolen property would be concealed in any of the multitude of equipment and paraphernalia commonly used in such operations. By the time the thefts were discovered, many hours later, the baggage handlers would be off-duty and able to have disposed of the loot. The problem was, mainly, that the baggage handlers had a, union, agreement as to who could be hired, and who could be employed on the teams of baggage handlers. This precluded us, at the time, of infiltrating their close-knit groups. Finally, however, a break occurred and we took a whole team and a couple of receivers to the Old Bailey where, after a lengthy trial, they were convicted. The court treated the matter very seriously and substantial sentences were handed down. The baggage handlers agreement referred to was similar, in principle, to the highly restrictive practices of the old-time stevedores and dockers who, coincidentally, also stole property worth many millions as a result. If this is doubted, one has only to check with the insurance companies as to the risk factor involved with shipping goods through the docks of yesterday. One item of freight that was particularly vulnerable in the early 60s was precious stones, particularly diamonds. The number of hugely valuable packages of precious stones, traveling by air, was large and extremely commonplace. Strange to relate these packages were, at one time, distinctively marked. So distinctively, that even those with limited intelligence could easily determine the contents a security blunder which hopefully remains corrected. So much happened and so many cases came to court during my squad days that I will finish on an anecdote unconnected with crime, other than it took place at a trial at the Old Bailey. Alfie Durrell was an exceedingly good and well-known detective sergeant. He was giving evidence in a case in which the prisoner was being defended by a barrister named Dukan. Dukan was decidedly anti-police. Alfie's name was well known to be pronounced, with the emphasis on the L. All through the cross-examination, Mr. Dukan had called Alfie Sergeant Durrell. Eventually, after about two hours of this, Alfie chose the right moment and with the right amount of decorum he addressed Mr. Dukin as Mr. Dukin. Dukan bristled and snarled. Sergeant, my name is Dukan, Can, as you very well know. Alfie leaned across and down from the lofty witness box and, glaring at Dukin said, and my name is Durrell, as you very well know. Seeking solace for himself, and chastisement for Alfie, Dukan made a spluttered protest to the judge who, looking like the Cheshire cat, said, you did rather ask for that, Mr. Dukan. Please proceed. My days on the flying squad ended too soon, but ended they became. I was posted to T-Division and served, for a short time, at the rural station of Norwood Green. This was a happy sojourn, with the uniformed officers and the single CID officer working closely. Involvement in a plan to track down and catch a particularly troublesome housebreaker was rewarding, but unspectacular. It was a case, like so many, that involved long hours, great patience and a little luck. The case that still pleases me the most was being able to bring to justice a teenager who, most stupidly, ignited fireworks in a young boy's rear trouser pocket, as a prank. The young lad suffered severe and deep burns to his buttocks and was unable to talk, let alone identify his assailant, for many weeks. By this time, extensive questioning and many hours of analysis had led me to the culprit who finally admitted his guilt. The young lad recovered, But he will have scarring for the remainder of his life. A spell at Harlington Police Station followed. Involvement, although not to any substantial degree, in the sad case of Carol White came soon after my arrival. Carol White was a young girl whose body had been found by a man walking his dog, ostensibly. The girl had been sexually assaulted and gagged, with her own underpants, in a field just beyond the houses on a street in West Drayton. Suspicion fell, initially, on a boyfriend, but this was quickly found to be groundless time of death was quickly established by stomach contents. She had been dead for nearly 24 hours. The poor girl had been killed not long after leaving her home. The parents, particularly the father, seemed more interested in obtaining money from the press than in helping the police. For a while, the father was even suspected, based on his apparent disinterest and the delay in reporting his daughter missing. After a while, a pathologist's report was received the pathologist stated that a two-sided knife blade was responsible for the wounds and, further, that the killer had stabbed White, probably while sitting astride her and facing her head, while she was lying down. The wounds, we were informed, indicated the killer was right-handed. My reaction to this was that, the pathologist should stick to dealing with facts, rather than conjecture. Surely, I reasoned, if the body was on the ground, the same wounds could have been caused by a person stabbing with the left hand from the ground at the top of the body. My hypothesis was accepted by the officer in charge. A desperate and far-reaching search for the knife was made. All the drains and storm sewers in the area were carefully drained and checked with the cooperation of the local council. No weapon, similar to the one described by the pathologist, was found. Meanwhile, inquiries continued. General discussion amongst the officers involved produced serious doubt as to the veracity of the man who found the body. A strange fish if ever there was one. Why had he arranged to take his wife and push their small child in a push chair? He didn't ever take these people with him when he went walking, which was rarely. Why had they traveled that particular route? He didn't normally and it was miles from his home. Why did he take the dog? He never walked the dog even locally, let alone a long distance. Why did he cross the road at the precise spot he did? They had all been walking on a perfectly good pavement. There was no pavement on the field side of the road. Initially the man, named Garlic, stated that the dog found the body and that he didn't go anywhere near it, after seeing what it was from a distance. A witness was found who identified Garlic as being with the murdered girl. This testimony was not reliable by itself. Then, a big break. A smudge set of fingerprints were found on the dead girl's handbag. The prints matched Garlic's. He was brought to the police station for questioning, and he confessed. Later that night, with the wind howling and the rain pouring down in torrents as though we were actors in some gothic horror movie, I used Garlic's own spade to dig up a knife from his garden. He had indicated a spot and the knife was found within a foot of the spot indicated. The knife was not double-sided. It did, however, have a sharp pointed tip. This, it was later established, would have cut the skin on both sides of the stab wounds, in youthful flesh, sufficiently for it to appear as though the whole blade of the knife was sharp on both sides. Oh yes, Garlic was left-handed. Mark it two for the police and zero for the pathologist. The pathologists, however, when dealing with matters that they were skilled in, turned up sufficient evidence to link Garlick to the murder scene and to link him, incontrovertibly, to having had sexual relations with poor Carol White. Garlic was later convicted at the Old Bailey, on the clearest possible evidence. His wife made the saddest figure I have ever seen, as she sat waiting in the large foyer of the Central Criminal Court. She was bedraggled, unkempt, frail and friendless, but turned up day after day to be close to her worthless husband. What a poor pathetic creature she was. So little seems capable of being done for such people who, so often, bring trouble upon their own heads. Somehow, sorrow seems so inadequate. She was, however, a person truly deserving of every sympathy. Garlic had murdered the girl and left her body in the field. He couldn't believe that the murder had not been reported in the papers or on the radio or television so, in case the girl had miraculously recovered, the next day he found an excuse to take his wife, child and dog back to the vicinity of the crime. Here, he deliberately took the dog across the road and slipped its leash. Not surprisingly, the dog sniffed out the body. Whereupon Garlic made a production of finding the body, for the benefit of his wife. It isn't often that the finder of a murdered body is later convicted of the murder. Justice was certainly served in this case. Much of the work at Harlington involved happenings on the Heathrow Airport. The airport had its own police, but they were not empowered to deal with crime. This had to be dealt with by the Metropolitan Police. Even then, and I know it has increased a hundredfold, the airport was a small town in itself. In amongst all the normal crime, we were called upon to deal with many bomb hoaxes. Once, the Scottish national football team was involved and, as was common, stood about with nothing to do for a while. After the plane had been searched, it was enjoyable talking to the team and, in particular, Dennis Law. Some of the team were practicing their dexterity by dropping a penny from their forehead down to their feet and then flicking it back, with either foot, so that it landed, flat, on their foreheads again. Many of the team were quite accomplished at this feat of skill. I tried it, afterwards. It is impossible. One particular incident involved doing something that normally only happens in films. I had to hold a plane from taking off. Information was received that Patty Hopkirk, the famous rally driver, was on a flight to Ireland outstanding summonses were piling up for, although he was a very fine driver, his attention to the Highway Traffic Act appeared minimal. A formal request was made and later, out on the tarmac, I boarded the plane. Mr. Hopkirk was easily recognizable, so the summonses were served and the plane, with Mr. Hopkirk aboard, was allowed to proceed. Not many people can say they did that. If the speaker was, indeed, correct, I met and spoke to the originator of the prepared, pre-packaged and delivered airline food tray. His business had grown considerably since its inception and was, when I spoke to him, situated just off the main A4 Great West Road, adjacent to the Harlington Neck. At the time, he was preparing thousands of meals daily. Quite a business, and destined, I fear, to grow still further. Staines was my next station. While here, 1964-65, I was able to get home for lunch on occasion, as I lived in nearby Ashford at 5 Sundown Road. The working conditions at Staines were very good. Not only were the uniformed officers cooperative and congenial, my ex-boss Detective Sergeant Byers came to join us as the CID inspector in charge of the station. I had worked for this man at Notting Hill and while on the flying squad. He was a first-rate policeman and governor. There was plenty of varied work, but we were not rushed off our feet. Life was good. In fact, it was almost civilized, at last.